give me levels. Test, test, test. Mundangerous post office. <laughs> yeah, it's the worst post office in the planet. <laughs> Which is saying a lot. It's, there's always a line and it's never on time. post office in new york city i'm your host shane and i'm your host ishan and welcome to episode 73 of total party thrill a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours in this episode we're opening up our mailbag and answering your questions but first the morning glory campaign ends and later the flash is faster than a very slow bullet in the character creation forge all right so the morning glory campaign has come to an end you mean in real life yeah, and this is our last recap. Yeah. So, three years, 20 levels. The balance of Eberron, Eberron as a place, hangs in the balance. Where are we, Isha? Kind of screwed. Because the party has tracked Belshalor, the Shadow in the Flame, into the Silver Flame and are fighting him on his own turf. They are currently on a plateau, and the rest of the multiverse has fallen away. The stars have fallen from the sky. Everything is unraveling at the seams, and Belshalor has recruited the party's warforged Bastion to his side. Yeah, so he offered us all a deal, as is his nature. A good deal. He offered each one of, each member of the party 10% of all of creation, of all of the multiverse, to do with as we please. Uh, he would retain the other 40%. And we could basically save a net of, well, I'm going to say 60%, but I know Bastion isn't actually going to save his 10%. So <laughs> we'll save half the multiverse. Which is way more than you're probably going to save if you win. Mm, yeah, maybe. <laughs> but the party, being a bunch of goody two-shoes, all turned him down, except for Bastion. Right. Who said, actually, the only thing I want to do is to save my people. Forget these fleshies. And so... Friends went to war with each other. <laughs> and initially we had some trouble. We couldn't quite crack through Belshalor's defenses against spells. Uh, Bastion had been powered up by Belshalor, so he was kind of wrecking us with all of his monk attacks. Yeah, and he was bigger and stronger and tougher. Oh, and he had wings. Now he has wings. He has wings, <laughs> which is always great to see a Warforged Dreadnought with wings. <laughs> really puts the dread in Dreadnought. But as things are looking very dire, Brand uses his ace in the hole. I was actually going to say trump card, but I don't, I don't want to go there. No, it was an ace in the hole. <laughs> so Brand cast a wish. His first real actual wish. The only time I have ever used the wish spell for something that required me to roll to keep it. <laughs> <laughs> so wish has a 33% chance of never being able to be cast again when you make a wish. What was your wish? I wished that we had what we needed to save the multiverse. This seems very unlike you because that's very open-ended and easy to screw with. Oh, yeah. And uh, and knowing you, I knew you would be extremely tempted to screw with it. Yes. So I also, before you even responded, I used my cleric ability, Divine Intervention, which I had gained through our epic destinies. And had been sandbagging this whole time. Had not used yet. Mm -hmm. uh, and I used that to ensure that my wish worked as intended. <laughs> I basically said, you, 
all of you out there, anyone out there who can hear me, <laughs> put everything you have into this or we're all screwed. And I couldn't think of a way to screw with that. And so the party's artifact, Cube, the last shattered remnant of Primus, the great chain of being, who was one of Belshalor's age-old adversaries, spoke up and said in a quiet, tired voice, I think I can help. And Cube broke out of the apparatus containing Belshalor's true name, spun in the air and turned a brilliant golden bronze, and then exploded in a blast of light, enveloping the rest of the party, but not Bastion. Yeah, screw that guy. And they got a full heal. All of their stats became 20. Which means that most of us also gained a bunch of HP as a result. (laughs) (laughs) They were able to use arcane spells again without defiling, because remember, they're currently in Dark Sun. Right. And they were able to use divine spells and abilities at all again. Which meant we were no longer hurting ourselves using our spells, and our divine casters were actually able to use their spells. Like cure spells. Right. <laughs> like mass heal. <laughs> yes. Because up until this point, the party had been kind of fighting with maybe not one hand, but one thumb tied behind their backs. Like one hand tied behind their backs. <laughs> Nuking yourself with uh, with defilement damage every time you try and cast a spell, which doesn't even penetrate Belshalord. That's a hand behind your back. Fine, fine, fine. And then the burnt out, dull gray husk of cube thuds to the ground, doesn't even bounce. And the last thing he says is, I'm glad I never had to see Kithri. (laughs) That's the plane of disorder. (laughs) The one place Cube could be killed. Right. Now with the party fully powered up and Bastion fully powered up and Belshalor ready to go, the battle connects again in earnest. Yeah. And this time, like Civil War, you know, like like Captain fighting back. (laughs) (laughs) Now... The party could see the rest of the multiverse has been falling away and is becoming more and more indistinct and hazy. But they can see Belshalor himself seems to be solidifying even more, more coherent. And even lower level spells are ceasing to affect him because they already know their most powerful spells have not been affecting him. Now their mid-range spells are not affecting him. He seems to be somehow gathering all his energy. And he is flinging bolts of electricity or they're coming down from what is essentially the sky. Searing light is blasting them. They're getting thrown off of the precipice. Some of them are able to fly back. Others need to grab onto the edge and climb their way up to the top of the impossible spire. And, well, we started shifting our attention to Bastion as well. (laughs) So the high-level spells started hitting him hard. You are no longer redeemable. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Now, I actually never mentioned this, I think, in-game. And I don't think, Shane, that you know this. Because we've talked about before, there are like sometimes bits of backstory or information that as a GM you put together and there are reasons that things happen. But there isn't always an opportunity for that to come out in-game necessarily. And this was the last session, so it never really came out. And then we moved on to other stuff. Mm-hmm. So I don't know that I necessarily would have wanted it to come out in-game. But the reasons that Belshazzar was using powers like light and lightning and flinging you in a style that sort of seemed like telekinesis was that that was actually gravity manipulation. And the reason that he could move Kallik around like a puppet, right, not through mind control, but physically controlling him was quantum entanglement. See, Belshalor was creating a world with no magic and no gods and no luck and no spells. 
He was creating our world. Yeah. And so he was using the the powers of this new world, electromagnetism, gravity, quantum entanglement. Uh, there were a couple times uh, some of you got thrown together and then there was an explosion. So <laughs> weak and strong nuclear forces. Mm-hmm. That is not a thing I think needs to get explained in game. No. <laughs> but once I came up with that, it did give me easy hooks to hang his powers on that still looked normal in game, but yeah. then I didn't need to like come up with whole cloth. Yep. And so the the fact that our spells weren't working on him was because he was literally stripping magic out of the multiverse, right? Yeah, and actually, so me- mechanically speaking, I think what usually happens is, you know, oh, they power up, so they're immune to first-level spells, and then they're immune to second-level spells, etc. But I was thinking, if that happens, then... Okay, you'll use your your toughest spells, but then the spellcasters will have nothing to do because like their cantrips and low level spells don't work. Right. It's more interesting if he's immune to ninth level spells, and then he's immune to eighth level spells, and you work your way down. Yeah. I think that leads to a more fun battle. It was also helpful for us because we largely didn't take attack spells with our high level stuff. Right. So it, it was more like we try and use the slot for a higher powered, like for an empowered lower level spell, and it didn't work. So right. it was like, oh, okay, cool. So. Don't bother using your 8th level slot. The 7th level slot didn't work. Right. The other thing that you guys didn't know, but that I was trying to telegraph, was, you know, he's he's getting more powerful. Things are coming to a head. The countdown was the spells, right? And once he gets down to immune to all spells, it is apotheosis. Mm. And that was basically happening, happening once per round. So he has massive area attacks. He has a minion who is extraordinarily mobile and hits very hard and can hit, I think, five of you every round. Yeah. And does, because he always connects. Bastion always connects. Yeah. But the party is finally able to actually fight back, because now they're able to bring all of their abilities to bear. You guys are finally actually hurting Belshalor, and Bastion is looking over at him and going, I could use a little bit of healing over here. (laughs) And getting nothing in return. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Because early on, there was some healing from Belshalor, and then later on, it was... Mm, I think I'm gonna I'm gonna save this stuff. Yeah, <laughs> maybe for me. Looking out for number one here. <laughs> so I think we we did end up taking down Bastion, right? Near the end, yes. Yeah, Bastion finally goes down, and then that's when it it really turns for Belshazzar. But we're like right up against the clock. Yeah, because you can already tell he's he's very nearly immune to every spell, and then you guys started getting really tactical because you knew that it was coming down to the wire, and you started going. Okay, wait, wait. <laughs> wait, we we got somebody who has a thing for this. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> she has spent her whole career as the fiend slayer. <laughs> Emery the bard had epic destiny abilities that were particularly useful against fiends, and she had actually slain Belshazzar's herald, Mistrim Shadar. And so at that point you said, "All right, everyone, let's support Emery." Right? She is the one who really needs to come to bear, right? Sorry, I know you're an archer. Get in the front. Yeah. Make this happen and start killing this thing. Right. A lot of help actions. A lot of maneuvering, a lot of tanking. A lot of boost spells. And it finally came down to the very end. Belshalor seemed very weak, but the rest of the multiverse also seemed very weak. And it was Emery's turn. She was just 10 feet away from him with her bow pointed right at his head and she let an arrow fly now do you remember bahar the madani prophet had his portent ability and i think he had an 18 he had an 18 right sitting, and he said, yeah he had that one in the bank and he said 
hold on, hold on. I can use this 18 and you can definitely hit and then you can use your Slayer Strike ability and that will probably, hopefully, kill him if you roll well. And she said, okay, I have two, I have extra attack. Yep. Let me make this first roll. Now, for those of you listening, we've talked about this a lot before, but not Emery, Steph. Steph herself, the player, almost always rolls really low. Yeah. It's... it's- her thing. It's a it's a curse. Yes. <laughs> it doesn't matter whose dice. <laughs> so we were all, me included, right? GM included, a little bit worried that this was going to be a double whiff. Now we had the 18 backup. That was good. But I really liked that Steph said, hold on, I'm just going to roll this first. What happened? Oh, she crit. <laughs> In the most clutch roll ever. <laughs> it was amazing. It's the kind of thing, you dream of this happening as a GM. Like the last roll of a campaign... And the character that is specifically built to destroy a particular kind of BBEG crits. Yep. It was amazing. It was, I, I mean, it, it probably woke the neighbors. Because <laughs> it's like, it's probably close to midnight at this point. <laughs> right. <laughs> like, this is like a six-hour session. Right, it was like, forget your 18. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Actually, it might have been like one in the morning at this point. <laughs> and so she picked up, well, she didn't have enough dice. Right, because she used a Slayer Strike ability. She had uh, the extra damage from the bow. Yeah, so we're all like chipping in dice. Right, <laughs> get here, a no, big here's old pile. <laughs> and she rolled it, all, rolled it all up. And when everything was said and done, I believe it was 103 damage. And if that isn't enough to kill the uh, impending master of the universe, well, we just don't have it tomorrow. I'll tell you right now, it was actually enough and i i didn't fudge it he had 1500 hit points and that finished it and belshalor fell dead we had saved the day you'd saved every day literally forever <laughs> forever and ever <laughs> i mean until the next big bad comes along and then of course the multiverse decides to calm down and everything around them begins to fade away because of course they're not really in a place they're inside the silver flame mhm and they are ejected from it unceremoniously onto the floor of Flamekeep. And there they look up and see, with only one arm, yeah. the 12-year-old Jayla Darren, the keeper of the flame. Well, former keeper former. of the flame. Yeah. There's not much flame left. <laughs> and thus the campaign ends. And the party now needs to go about figuring out what to do with the rest of their lives. Yeah. So the campaign ends. The squabbling begins. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so Jayla Darren, of course, High Cardinal Crozen is dead. And she says, well, we could use another High Cardinal. I do have one thing, though. I want you to disband the Inquisition. I think we've seen that no good comes of it. Which I did. Did you really? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> you made a big show of it. I formally disbanded the Inquisition. Okay, there we go. <laughs> I reshaped the Inquisition in my image. Officially, it does not exist. Right. Which is all that matters. We went extra, extra underground. <laughs> Calic was able to use his connections with Queen Danelle to establish a new nation of Seer, to rebuild it. And, of course, his daughter, who bears the mark of making, becomes the head, of, the new head of House Caneth because, thanks to the party's actions, all three heads have been killed. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Lou decided she was going to wander to continue research and, and her studies because she knew that she had once been great and she could be great again. Bahar took over leadership of House Madani. And for once, 
it actually started getting along with House Kenneth, which for once wasn't super evil. <laughs> I mean, for now. For now. What's, <laughs> what's one human's lifetime? Just, just like the Inquisition. <laughs> Emery always being kind, and it may have something to do with the fact that Steph and Cameron are dating. Yeah. <laughs> decided to seek out Bastion's soul to return him to life so that he could actually have a chance to redeem himself. Yeah, well, you know, the not Inquisition's first task <laughs> was to find Keeper's Breath, which is the dust that had been introduced during our murder mystery at mm-hmm. Thronehold when Cardinal Crozen was killed. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was spread about him to prevent him from being resurrected. So the Inquisition's first task was to find some of that stuff and make sure that Bastion stayed dead for it. <laughs> because he deserved it. Because he is the second most powerful being in in the known multiverse <laughs> and has actively tried to destroy the multiverse <laughs> which is which is the reason the inquisition exists now by the way like, to prevent bastion from ever the sole reason the inquisition was not fully informally disbanded i love that like in the year and a half since this game ended this is still a thing that that the players right shane and steph argue about like who would have won who has won in that struggle yeah that that's our reddit <laughs> who, who would win <laughs> And, of course, the party, although I guess you can't really call them a party anymore, right? The group, who have kind of gone their separate ways, know that in a year they need to get back together. Yeah. Use his true name to summon Nishram Shadar and and then capture him. Yep. And, you know, kill him again. (laughs) (laughs) That might be a thing. The party might be like, every year and a day, we're going to find this guy and kill him because he deserves that. Right. Because we're going to use the last Keeper's Breath on Bastion. (laughs) (laughs) What's funny, though, is Nistrum Shadar without Belshalor is actually not that big of a threat. He's a high-level Rakshasa, but, you know, you killed him so he doesn't have his magic items yeah. or anything like that. Right? And there's, like, a ton of other Rakshasas and still fiendish overlords that exist in Eberron. So really the only reason you're doing this is spite. Is spite, yeah. <laughs> it's like, we're, we're good guys. We're not great guys. <laughs> uh, I'm okay. Yeah. <laughs> I did leave seeds in case the party ever wanted to try to do some sort of epic version. There's Durasturn is still out there, the body hopping dragon who uh-huh. killed Tiamat's yep. uh, proc two. That guy hates you. With good reason. Yeah. You murdered his entire half dragon army family. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. Uh, we also, we got some answers to some longstanding questions. Well, we had gotten the answer to the question of Lou and um, about her existence. Right, what she was. Uh, we also got the answer to the question about how Brand became a half-elf dragon sorcerer after traveling through a portal. It turns out sometimes the traveler likes to pretend to be other gods or dead deities. So there was a there were also some scenes that, where Brand went to the restricted section of the Inquisitorial Library and tried to find records and, and lore and information that would help us in our quest. It was and, very Harry Potter. Yeah, and there was always a, an old librarian in there who was extremely helpful in pointing Brand in the right direction. And in the process of sort of the, the last few sessions as we were racing against time, we got a hint that that person didn't ever exist. There was no no librarian that fit that description or that name. Um, and in fact, that section of the library didn't exist, I think. <laughs> yes, one of the reveals in the epilogue. Mm, I don't know what books you're talking about. Right, uh, which is actually really important in Eberron lore because the deities don't directly interact and interfere in Eberron. So they're, they're not even necessarily known to be alive or dead in any conventional or real. sense. real. Right, yeah. yeah. They're, they're very much faith-based. So 
the fact that a deity was somehow manipulating the events would give us high level plot seats. <laughs> you know, what are some of those dark six doing? And I'd be interested to see what the dragons think about almost non existing. Mm. You yeah. think maybe they would have, I don't know, done something. Yeah. It took them a bit by surprise, you guys being so powerful and all. Uh, yeah, and them uh, misreading the Draconic Prophecy so terribly. Well, I think they've probably got 40,000 years to think about it. Yeah. <laughs> so we hope you've enjoyed this rendition of the Morning Glory campaign. Yeah, and for next episode, we're going to have to do something totally different. Man, maybe we should play an entire campaign really quickly. Uh, yeah, that's going to be hard to do. So we've we put up a poll on Twitter. The results came in pretty we got some really good ideas for other alternatives, but the the two main options were either kind of weekly plot hooks, sort of inspirational ideas for your campaign or recapping our Rogue Trader campaign, which is the longest campaign that we've run since Morning Glory. Mm-hmm. Um there's also a lot of interest in Dark Sun and then being a D&D setting and and not one that's native to 5e. It's I think that's an, another interesting thing to do, but um, that game is still very much in progress and very early on. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of tough to really recap something that we're only maybe a couple sessions ahead of. Yeah. So um, it's going to be Rogue Trader is how we're going to start and see kind of where the feedback goes on that. If you absolutely hate it and aren't interested in, in a Warhammer 40K campaign. We can uh, just start lying and making it interesting. Right. Or <laughs> we'll move on to plot hooks. Uh, and we might start doing those plot hooks as kind of um, – sort of a buffer in between so that we we can do a couple other ideas in the space occupied by the morning glory campaign that's right and for those of you who have hated morning glory you're welcome yeah we're done (laughs) only took 73 episodes all right so let's move on to our annual mailbag i may say annual but you know it's coincidental that it's annual It's, (laughs) it's just that we haven't actually been good about collecting questions yeah and it doesn't need to be another year before we do another but it has been Full disclosure, Ishan has not seen all of these questions that I've selected, uh, so this is going to be a little bit off the cuff, so make sure you hold his feet to the fire on these things. Yeah, all right, here we go. All right, this one comes from uh, listener Scott. This is, hey, Mundangerous, can you talk about component cost for Magic users running my first 10th plus level campaign? Should Magic users get to use stuff with no boundaries? We've talked a lot about how there are many things in fifth edition that like aren't really well thought out or aren't really that balanced, but I think comp- the component costs are fine. If something requires a 5,000 GP diamond, you use a 5,000 GP diamond. If something costs less than one GP, you're supposed to ignore it. So just ignore it. Yeah. I think the items that have the GP cost, if they're big enough, make those plot items, mm-hmm. you know, so like make it getting that diamond. So you have the safety of resurrection, right? Could be like a, a subplot or a, a major reward in and of itself. Right. I wouldn't make those just, Oh cool. We have 40,000 gold. I'm just going to go buy eight of those. Well, it depends on the kind of game, right? So like at the end of the morning glory campaign, by the time you guys are like level 16, yeah, you go to Isle of car and pick up some diamonds, you know, yeah. cause you're basically exchanging arch uh, robes of the arch magi at that point. Yeah. Good point. So tie that into how you want magic to function in the game, Mm -hmm. right? Um, If you want it to be limited, then make sure those are plot-appropriate rewards. And if you want it to be bonkers, let them spend gold. Yeah, the things that you usually need those components for are resurrections. I think those are the most common things. So if you're going to restrict those, keep in mind that basically what you're doing is restricting the ability to bring people back from the dead, which actually may be really good for your campaign. Maybe there are only three resurrection quality diamonds in the world. Yeah. 
And that's fine. Uh, but make it a plot point if you're going to do that. Yeah. So that there's an in-world explanation. Our next question is from Ryan. Is Total Party Thrill a fifth edition podcast? Allegedly, no. <laughs> <laughs> I always tell people who ask no. I am always like, uh, maybe we shouldn't focus so much on fifth edition. And I think now that we're not going to have Morning Glory, at least for a while, we will be it will feel a little bit less fifth edition focused. Yeah. But I think fifth edition is still such a major factor in the gaming community that, I mean, we'll still be talking about it, right? We still cover, uh, unearthed arcana regularly. So I think we're, we're fifth edition leaning, but I think the main topic is generally not strictly fifth edition. Yeah. Our plan is always to have the topic be applicable to any kind of role-playing game. And even when we did, very specifically a session on low fantasy in Dungeons and Dragons. It wasn't restricted to 5th edition, and we tried to throw in as much stuff about using it in other kinds of games as possible. To mixed effect. (laughs) (laughs) Although Character Creation Forge, I think, will always be 5th edition. Yeah, I I don't see another system having the mass appeal to make that segment work Mm -hmm. that isn't 5th edition. Barring Pathfinder, which I'm unwilling to wade into those waters. Mm -mm. (laughs) All right, so this next question comes from Jason Chris Baker. This is in reference to uh, episode 57, our plot hooks episode. So this is actually a couple months old, but Ishan, I can't wait to hear your answers. Okay. So the Winter Soldier idea from our plot hook, this was, uh, you can summarize that in a bit. Uh, He says, it's insanely fun. I don't have a group with enough time to dedicate to a weekly game, but a night every two to four weeks is certainly possible. It's something I've been thinking about for a bit, but since life often gets in the way of 20-something professionals. So to Ishan, how would you structure the time jumps to where they work? Would it go ancient Rome to Celtic to medieval, etc.? And Shane, how would you how would your approach to this hook differ from Ishan's? Would you even run this game? <laughs> so for those of you who didn't hear that one or don't remember, the quote unquote Winter Soldier game he's talking about is Shane and I got a little too invested in the sequester spell. Yeah, (laughs) we're just sort of riffing on it. That basically puts someone to sleep. It removes them from reality, essentially. And then until there's some sort of trigger that comes to pass. And then they wake up uh, having basically been in stasis. So we were thinking there it would be a campaign where all the heroes are put into a sequester until they're needed again, right? Until the world needs heroes and they're woken up and then they go out in some mission, kill the Tarrasque, whatever. They come back, they go back into sequester etc. And the idea is that every time they wake up, the world is completely different. There's obviously some new issue that they need to need to deal with, but time has passed. And so maybe technology has moved as well. So Jason is saying, would you start at ancient Rome and then the next jump is to like Celtic Europe and then medieval Europe, etc. And I would say that's definitely a way that you can structure it. But remember that you're probably in a fantasy world. The technological advancement and the societal changes in the world won't necessarily mirror that of you know, the last 2,000 years of Earth history. Right, because of magic. Or even if you're doing really low fantasy, like if someone like Julius Caesar had never existed, or you know Genghis Khan, really, mm, yeah. like things are just going to look different. Now, I think it's an easy way to telegraph that, you know, what time period are you in? What kind of technology can you deal with? What kind of weapons are you going to be dealing with? If people are like, oh, I see, okay, like... We are in a like a medieval fiefdom, and previously we were in like ancient Rome where they had like coliseums and stuff. So like I get that really easily. But I would definitely throw in a few times when 
they end up in a place that's backwards to their minds, right? Less technologically advanced. What happened in the intervening years? Mm. Maybe one time they didn't get woken up. The Tarasque destroyed civilization. You're now in the Bronze Age. And you're trying to figure out what went wrong. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, I like the idea of jumping far, far into the future. Um, this is your opportunity to you know, throw a little sci-fi into your D&D. So this is actually really neat with Starfinder coming out from Paizo. Mm. If you're in a Pathfinder game, you could greatly advance the timeline and, and be in like a, a Starfinder type setting uh, using Pathfinder, which should be roughly compatible. As fans of Eberron, I also like the idea of, you know, maybe it's 500 years in the future from where like sort of technologically we are in the real world, but it's an Eberronian version, you know, so it's not technology and electricity and all this. It's magic. Magic runs Star Trek, essentially. Mm -hmm. So how would you do that differently? Or I don't know, would you would you do this game? Uh, <laughs> it's a lot of work. We it's, talked about that it's in a lot that of work. episode. Yeah, I, I don't know that I want to build that many settings mm -hmm. in intervening weeks you know so i think at the pace that he mentions in the question you know every month um i would be a little more interested in that um maybe every six months <laughs> <laughs> and i said this sort of jokingly what i would do is probably run the first two time jumps of the campaign and then have the third one be like a, a national treasure style mystery where you're following the clues laid by the order of mages who revive you um and and they have kind of gone to ground to protect the secret. So you're almost cut loose from your mission and you've got to figure out how do we, what do we do next? Like what happened? How do we prevent this problem from happening going forward? Should we go back to our sequestering? Should we revive this order? Should we just exist? Mm -hmm. um, I, I would have it asked those kind of questions, but it would be sort of an investigation type campaign. Mm -hmm. um, and then of course, like, this would just fall apart under its own weight because I don't think I could pull that one off. <laughs> <laughs> I love the idea of having one of the scenarios be that the party is sort of stranded in a peaceful time. Nothing's happening. Oh, you're like awoken by mistake? Yeah. You're like looking for the evil and you can't find and it? And there isn't anything. And so like you could just live out your lives peacefully, like opening a bakery. <laughs> <laughs> but you're going to die of old age before right. you're needed. And there are no wizards around because they didn't wake you up. See, I think that's a really interesting episode of a TV show. I don't think that makes for a great <laughs> role-playing game. It's it's one session. <laughs> uh, yeah, I know, but still. <laughs> All right, next question. This came from Nerdbro DMV. What next for the 40K RPGs? Will they go to a new publisher? Oh, that is a great question. Um this is all under the uh, banner of reckless speculation. Yeah, we yeah. have uh, no inside information. I'm here. thinking probably uh, we're going to open a Kickstarter page, and if you guys can give us thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars, we'll buy it. Oh yeah, I'll buy it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, what, what do you what do you think? Like twenty thousand, thirty thousand, fifty thousand? Uh, I think it's basically a fire sale, right? So I mean, it doesn't seem like anybody <laughs> wants it. Yeah, it hasn't been announced. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I think uh, I think somebody will pick up the license. If I had to wager, I would bet Green Ronin because Chris Premis was pretty involved in um, the original 40K RPG, and he was also involved in the Warhammer Fantasy role-playing game. So I think that's a candidate. They're a big enough company that they could land it. Yeah, um, and we would support that because we've liked many of Green Ronin's products. Yeah, um, I think sort of my dark horse candidate would be Schwab Entertainment. Um, Rob Schwab, the 
creator of Shadow of the Demon Lord is their current game. They have another game coming out soon. Might put a damper on it, but he was also really involved with Warhammer Fantasy. Uh, and I know that he has a third edition of Warhammer Fantasy that he wrote uh, that does not mirror the third edition that was released by Fantasy Flight. With the wacky dice. Right. Uh, which is uh, now sitting on my shelf because of their <laughs> holiday sale. <laughs> Uh, but so I would say that's a dark horse candidate, but I, I don't know. I don't know what the cost of that license is and how much product you have to move in order to recoup that. Right. But expect it to go to a new publisher at some point. Yeah. A Games Workshop probably isn't going to let that sit forever. And Games Workshop has mostly closed the Black Library imprint. You know, they, they've got their publishing arm, but it's all novels. They're mm-hmm. not doing gaming stuff. So, uh, you know, I, there's a chance they could bring it back in-house but in which case it'll probably be terrible yeah unfortunately the the lore will probably stay mediocre and the uh the mechanics will probably go to the south all right next up is a question from andrea what magical items have you wanted to use in your campaign but couldn't give to your players yet (laughs) uh Staff of the Magi? Oh, no, that's not your answer. Your answer is apparatus of Qualish. <laughs> no, 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 it was, it was an option. I could, I tried to give it to you guys. I was like, <laughs> if you take an apparatus of Qualish, I will make it worth your while. <laughs> and everyone said, eh, no. <laughs> yeah, I had a list of legendary items that were available in the Morning Glory campaign. And like, I was like, the rest of these, no, these are broken. You can't have them. Sorry. Yeah, because lots of them are broken, and you should not have them. Yeah. Sorry. Which staff is it? The the broken one? The Magi. Magi, yeah. 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 Oh, yeah. You let us use the Staff of Power instead. Right. You but... were definitely like, hey, Staff of Magi is okay, right? Yeah. And then I was like, hold on, I'm putting together a list. Right. <laughs> <laughs> it was any 40K stuff where you were like, mm-mm, mm-mm. I mean, I know I was like, I get an Animus Hammer, right? Yeah, some of the... Uh... Some of the hammers from the last expansion, the... Uh, Enemies Beyond. Yeah, um, which were made for demon hunting, were, like, insanely powerful. And I would love to have seen those in our 40K games, but they didn't make a whole lot of sense for rogue traders to have them. And yeah. our Dark Heresy game was never going to get high enough. And we were also in the Ordo Zeno, so, like, whoops. Right. <laughs> um, for me, it's... Uh, I've never used any of the Vecna items you know, I've never tempted players with the Eye of Vecna or anything like that. I think that would be cool to do, but um, I don't know. It's a little bit cliche at this point. I just It's a touchstone I've never gotten a chance to be a part of. I would like to see it used in a way that didn't end up being cliche. What, you mean like a total trap? <laughs> <laughs> like, a, like a total and obvious trap that the player is willfully walking into because he wants to see what happens. I like the idea that the... Uh, I and the Hand of Vecna have this lore around them about how they totally screw anyone who gets anywhere near them. But that's just a legend and like the reality is something, you know, more subtle or more interesting or something. Yeah. And then you have the players interact with that. I don't know how you would necessarily write that. It was sort of tough enough for me to work in the Book of Vile Darkness or the Deck of Many Things. Yeah. But I'm glad that I was able to get them into the campaign. I, I mean, I think the way I would want to do that would be to have it out there as a threat right that the players feel like they're it's safer if they control it right not use it but mm-hmm. if they have it that means no one else does and they're constantly fighting against it yeah, yeah and I so like that. if if they and then you know the you put them in that position right the rock in the hard place where somebody feels like the only way out of this is to use it and now you've turned your campaign right that's your sort of <laughs> third act turn i guess i like that the party has jailers rather than 
jailbreaking. Yeah, yeah. Uh, this next question comes from Rich Howard. Have you ever answered why you both wanted, needed, to do a show in the first place? It's not easy and it takes commitment. We haven't answered that. I think maybe the honest answer is... We're if, idiots. Yeah, if we had known it would be this much work, we probably wouldn't have started it. <laughs> yeah, so we've talked a little bit about why we wanted to do it together, uh, which was that the Morning Glory campaign was ending, our uh, our game night was shifting, and our uh, hour-long subway rides that we had spent geeking out over D&D stuff mm-hmm. were going away because uh, we were, we were going to be playing at my apartment and I was no longer going to have to commute. So we wanted to do something, and, and how we landed on a podcast I think was probably more my fault than yours because uh, I was blogging quite a bit at the time and I've, I've always listened to a lot of gaming podcasts and, and for a long time um, that was the only way that I interacted with gaming at all because I wasn't really playing but I was kind of listening to actual plays and listening to discussion podcasts and then yeah I don't know for some reason I thought that a podcast would take less effort than a blog uh, and I'm not so sure about that <laughs> I think I was wrong uh, but one of the things I like about podcasts and, and that drew me to it as a medium is just that over time, you feel like you kind of get to know the people who are talking, you know, you, you get to know the hosts, you feel like a kinship with them more so than you do reading words on a page, you know? Yeah. For me, you sort of came to me the, with the idea of, Hey, let's do a show, you know? And I had been like after morning glory ended, this is, I mean, this is probably like six weeks, two months after morning glory ended. Um, I had been thinking in the interim, I should do like a massive write-up, you know, like put together the battle maps that I used and sort of do a walkthrough, um, like a skeleton of the campaign for anyone who sort of wants to run their own version of it, all that kind of stuff. And, you know, I hadn't gotten around to it yet. And then you were like, well, you know, why don't you just talk about it? And I was like, well, that's much easier than writing it down. Yeah, it turns out it's not true. <laughs> it just means you have to write it down first. <laughs> yeah. And then you have to edit it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So if you're thinking about doing a podcast on your own, just plan to edit forever. Yeah, all the time. That, that's, all the time. that's your hobby now. Yeah. I will say when we first started this, right, I had I had a new job, a new podcast, and I was uh, planning a wedding. You were newly engaged. Like, don't <laughs> do like, – I had literally zero free time for six straight months. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> Yeah, lots of lots of nights spent up till three or four in the morning trying to get this thing out for six a.m. Yeah, but uh, thanks for the question, Rich. Um, he's sort of our perpetual bromance and uh, host of the Whelmed podcast, uh, all about Young Justice. Great cartoon. All right, next question comes from Jeff. What are your experiences playing games online? What platforms are best? What's different about online versus in person? So I do play by post, but you have had more experience like doing live online gaming, yeah? Mm-hmm. Uh, what systems and what platform do you prefer? So I don't think system makes a huge difference. Mm. Um, the The main distinction is uh, whether or not you need a grid and minis, right? If that's integral to the system, then you've got to use something like a virtual tabletop. So Roll20 and Fantasy Grounds are the two that I use predominantly. I like Fantasy Grounds better. Lots of people like that Roll20 is free. So it's uh, it's a trade-off there. Um, but they both have all of the D&D 5e content loaded in them uh, that you can purchase as add-on modules. So uh, you can 
have a very streamlined and easy experience, and that is how I prefer to run my D&D online. But a lot of times I just end up using Hangouts, you know, or mm-hmm. Skype or something like that where you're just, you know, just a video chat basically. And uh, you can either use like a, a dice roller, you can roll at your desk, you can uh, do whatever you want to do for the dice mechanics, depending on how much you need to see your players' rolls. Yeah, I've done Hangouts games, like live Hangouts games as well, and that's been perfectly fine. Yeah. You haven't done any play-by-post yet, though, right? Um, not in a long time. I, I Years ago, yeah. Not since your IRC days. Well, I've done IRC as well, which is a very different animal <laughs> than either. Um, and I've also I've actually played on Roll20 without voice. I've played just through the Roll20 chat. Sign language? Oh, okay. Yeah, it's also <laughs> sign language. That's how you cast spells. Uh, for play-by-post, it, it is a completely different beast. Um, I think I mentioned recently, like I'm playing in a Star Wars saga game that finally went from level six to level seven, and that took nearly two years. Yeah, but I also don't feel like it's been two years because in game it's been a week. Yeah, uh, and probably I think playing all this out would have been I don't know ten sessions, fewer than ten sessions. Right. Um, it takes longer, but the time commitment is virtually nil. Well, you can kind of control your your yeah. timing of your commitments right it could be much much more yeah right? uh, but yeah you know i'll like casually take a quote-unquote walk to the bathroom at work and like you know throw up a post real quick yeah yep uh, and i like the giant in the playground forums the myth weaver forums are uh, also good i they're basically the same forum so they're equally easy to use yeah it, it can be tough to get into a game though you really need to sort of like focus on all right i'm going to find a game because every game that's listed ends up having like two dozen applications yeah um the something awful forums are really well known as well if you can tolerate something awful (laughs) um and storia i think is the app that had a kickstarter um that's kind of it's a pay-to-play sort of thing but um it's uh it's supposed to be a really great community around play-by-post playing and uh gamers playing is an is another option um, and the other thing that's different between um, online and in person, and specifically talking for video chat or, or voice chat, right, is you can't talk over each other, right? And so there's that awkwardness of two people start talking at the same time, who wins out, right? Mm-hmm. It's like a conference call in that regard. Uh, and so sometimes that that role playing element can be a little like weird and distracting, and you don't get a chance to to, to do the thing that you did because the scene has moved on and. Um, so that can be a little hard to manage, if especially with newer groups who kind of aren't used to dealing with that. So just make sure you steamroll everyone else. Yeah, that's generally my approach. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Just mm-hmm. be the loudest and least willing to stop talking. It's a role-playing game. You're not supposed to be yourself. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Our next question. Uh, our last question. Ooh, is from Michael Dinos. Dinos? Have you done an episode on single-player that's one player and one GM adventures. Would love to hear your thoughts. So we have not talked about this as an episode, and this might be a whole topic for a future episode. I'm yeah, I'm gonna add it to the list. Yeah. But I actually started running a single player campaign with my fiance. What system? Uh D and D five E. We are playing Game of Thrones, um, because that is an easier like setting touch point for her because she watches the show. Right. Um and uh yeah, so it's it's starting. <laughs> kind of putting you on the spot. How has it been? Is she a good player? 
Uh, yeah. I mean, she um, she's a new player, so she has some new player struggles, right? Like, I don't expose she's her. She's that guy. <laughs> no, no, not you should that. boot her. Just yeah, I gotta, I gotta get someone new. Yeah. <laughs> no, it's um, it's not a mechanical trouble. Like it, it's the um, the improv nature of role playing that that's a challenge for her. She feels like she sometimes is gonna screw it up if she says the wrong thing, and and those sorts of things. So it's just getting her comfortable with acting on the spot is sort of the bigger challenge that I have. And I don't know that that's tied to a single player game, but a couple takeaways that I have are you have less of the serendipitous interpersonal kind of um, conversation, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the characters or players arguing in character over what to do. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like, those, those are some of my favorite role playing interactions, right? Um, I think when you listen to actual play podcasts, that's what makes them great. Um, and I think similar to, to how convention games kind of end up being one player role-playing with the DM, then another player role-playing with the DM, then another player role-playing with the DM, and they never talk to each other, um, that's the only thing you get for a single-player game is it's just you and that person. Mm-hmm. So you've got to really be on your toes <laughs> to draw them into scenes um, when you're playing every other character, <laughs> you know. Um, and so one one way I think you can do that is is you can give kind of companions um, mm-hmm. that follow instructions, you know, animal companions. Well, or like uh, little brothers <laughs> to borrow from our campaign. <laughs> Or, you know, hirelings and that sort of thing um, that, that can be directed. Um, that also give you a chance to kind of guide the story along without, you know, being the voice of the DM. Yeah. I think this is one of those times where we spend a lot of time talking about, you know, player interaction. And this is an above-the-table conversation. Uh, mostly the player doesn't need to worry about that because like, they can't screw up the game for the most part. Right. Because there's only one spotlight. Yeah, you know that's perfect. You're not going to hog it if you go in this direction. The camera follows you as well. Like this is what's happening. Yeah, and um, systems that can really encourage that, like really draw social interaction, I think are better for this mm-hmm. than ones that um, focus on me- on mechanical combat. Just because combat is necessarily less tactical when you've only got one piece of it. You know, right? Like a like a single character is never the full combat system. Like you're not a healer and a tank and a damage dealer and a controller. Like you can't do all those roles. So you're missing part of the combat system. But you have the opportunity to get in character and stay in character for an entire session if that's what you want to do because you don't have the distraction of other people at the table either. Mm-hmm. And you also don't have that need to share the spotlight. <laughs> you know, Like as a player, it's just you. And I would say I'm sure the vast majority of situations where there is one GM and one player are already close personal relationships. You don't usually form a group with someone you don't really already know and then just do one-on-one role-playing. It's usually romantic relationship, partners, or close friends. Yeah, yeah. And it's it's definitely more intimate. Mm. Uh, you you kind of have to let your guard down a lot more, I think. Because you don't have the shielding of the other people at the table and, and you can't just crack wise to kind of hide your vulnerability is it weird when she's hitting on other people in game no (laughs) it's not weird when she's hitting on other people in person either (laughs) good to know (laughs) (laughs) dear diary jackpot (laughs) 
Do you hear that, Ishan? I think we've scraped the bottom of the barrel. Uh, mailbag. We've scraped the bottom of the mailbag. And so maybe it's time to move on. All right. Well, before we move on to the character creation forge, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sense Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us if you can't fit it into 140 characters at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.totalpartythrillcast.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at Total Party Thrill. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, we are drawing on a comic book inspiration as we build The Flash. I'm actually really surprised that it took us, what, 73 episodes to build anyone from the Justice League? Yeah. Well, we built Batman. Sort of, kind of. Yeah, we built Batman twice what was his alignment again uh all of them (laughs) (laughs) all right so the flash um runs really fast yeah Uh, that's basically what i was trying to hit he's also he doesn't wield weapons uh and he doesn't really use magic or that sort of stuff he doesn't change shapes he doesn't you know he's he's just a guy who goes really fast and has a you know the, the natural effects of that. Yeah, and is able to do it a lot. Yeah. Right? It's not a once a day, I'm going to run really quickly. Right. So what's the build? It's a hell of a build. It's a lot. It is Monk 6, Barbarian 5, Bladesinger 5, Rogue 2, Fighter 2. And what race are we? Oh, Oh, definitely Tabaxi. <laughs> and this is why we're doing it now. Yeah. <laughs> so the Tabaxi's racial ability allows it to double speed every other round. So run really fast. Take a breather. Run really fast. Run really fast, yeah. yeah. And then we have stacked on a bunch of class options that will grant extra base speed or extra ways of using actions to dash, which basically let you move up to your speed again. Yeah. So Monk gives you 15 more feet of movement. Yeah, this will be open hand or elemental, depending on how much you want to focus on the Flash punching dudes or how much you want to focus on the Flash doing like... Whirlwind arms. Yeah. yeah. Creative vortex. And, you know, fire trailing his steps. Then we've got Barbarian 5. We'll get another 10 feet of movement. and, And we'll take the Elk Totem which gives you 15 feet of movement while you're raging. Now, the Flash doesn't really get angry or rage very often, but remember, we're reflavoring this. He often, like, needs to get into it. He needs to yeah, gather get, speed. Kick it up a notch. Yeah, yeah. hold on. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> build some momentum. <laughs> Bladesinger 5 gets us another 10 feet of movement. That's from Bladesong, which uh, conveniently does not require concentration so you can use that while you're raging you can't use haste while you're raging no so we've got a couple different ways of getting haste in this build but because it does double your speed yeah but haste is the third level spell so you'll get that with bladesinger five uh that doubles your speed and gives you an extra action that you can use to dash more running yeah yeah uh, and then also the Bladesinger gets Longstrider as uh, one of its spells, which gives you 10 feet of movement for one hour and does not require concentration. So the Flash doesn't really cast spells, but there are definitely times when he's like, all right, 
hold on, I got to get in the right mindset because I'm going to run really fast. Yeah. Fighter 2 gets us Action Surge, which is an extra action which you can use to dash. And then Rogue 2 gives you Cunning Action, which lets you use your bonus action to dash. And there's actually a couple different things in here that will give you a dash as a bonus action. We went ahead and took two levels of Rogue just because, like you mentioned, Ishan, the Flash never gets tired. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So he might push it a little further on occasion, but he doesn't get tired. So he should always be able to dash. Yeah, you can do this all day or day. Right. Uh, Then we're also dependent on both feats and items because, you know. I mean, to get to the point that we did, sure. You could have a little bit slower flash without these things, but here are all the options. A little less flashy flash, if you will. (laughs) Uh, Kid flash. Right. (laughs) So first is the mobile feat, which gives you 10 feet of movement and uh, lets you avoid attacks of opportunity. From someone you attack which is important because of the sentinel feat, which could be used to reduce your movement to zero. You want to avoid getting hit by opportunity attacks. Yeah. There are the boots of speed, which will double your speed for up to 10 minutes throughout the day. There's also the potion of speed, which gives you the effect of haste without concentration. Which means you can use it while you're raging. Right. Um, And keep in mind, this will not stack with the haste spell. So it's one or the other, you know, either you're doing your blade singing thing and you're not raging or you're raging and you're going to potion a speed. Mm-hmm. There's the ring of free action. This isn't technically necessary, but it gives you most of the benefits of the freedom of movement spell. So magic isn't going to be able to reduce your speed or, you know, immobilize you. Yeah. And you can ignore difficult terrain. Uh, and then there's the boon of speed, which is one of the um, other rewards listed in the DMG for your achievement. Um, This one will give you plus 30 to your speed. Now, while that's GM dependent, we are building a 20th level character and it seemed reasonable for us to say that somewhere in there you were like, no, no, keep your very rare magic item. I would like the boon of speed. Right. You are the flash. That's your thing. (laughs) (laughs) And let's be honest, this is not going to be a monster in combat. (laughs) So avoiding all of the math, uh, this leads us to a base speed of 105 feet per round. Uh, and well, then, 105 feet per move. Oh, per right? move. So you right. could dash 210. Well, well yeah. So okay. your movement on your turn is 105 feet. Right. Uh, your walking speed is 105 feet. Um, you can also increase that with rage, uh, another 15 feet, and with a wizard's blade song, with another 10 feet to 130. So if you kick everything in full gear, then there are the multiple effects that will double your speed. And we couldn't find a clarification on how multiple doublings work. So we went with the more conservative approach of third edition, which was, you know, if you double it twice, you actually multiply by three versus double it, double it again, double it a third and fourth time. Uh, so the the effects that we use to double speed are the tabaxi's uh, feline agility, the haste spell, either via potion or via spell casting, and boots of speed. Uh, all of this brings us to a base speed of 420 feet, or if you are uh, using your rage and blade song, up to 520 feet. Now you've got to take all the different ways that you can apply that movement speed in a given round so you get your movement every round 
So that's one. You can dash. As an action. And that lets you move your movement again. So now we're up to two. Uh, we have several ways to use dash as a bonus action. So cunning action, let's say that. Mm-hmm. So that's a, a third movement. You can use the extra action that you get from haste to dash again. That's four. And of course, fighter's action surge lets you dash one more time. Five. Cool. So that's uh, 2,100 feet in a round if you're not raging and blade singing, or up to 2,600 feet in a round. I don't have a battle map that big. <laughs> so quick math. 2,100 feet around is 239 miles an hour. And 2,600 feet around, your max speed is 295 miles an hour. Now, we've seen some crazy shenanigans around that basically say, ah, you're faster than a beating bullet which you know bullets go i think mach 2 mach 2.5 depending well, well, on the gun. Mo- modern bullets do yeah, yeah yeah mach 1 the speed of sound is 761 miles per hour yeah i think with some rules lawyering we might have been able to get up that high but this i think is a very reasonable build that cannot be argued with i mean it's the doubling right so if you if you Multiply your speed by two, and then multiply that by two, and then multiply that by two. You're mm-hmm. going to get a crazy comical like Mach 2, Mach 3 build. Uh, we went for the conservative approach because let it be known that we, uh, <laughs> we're we not trying to rules lawyer here. <laughs> we want to win by winning. Right. A, a race against an arrow. <laughs> or maybe even some black, early black powder muskets, actually, uh, you would be faster than a bullet. According to our research, arrows travel between 300 and 400 feet per second, which is right in the middle of what our build can do. So without Bladesong and Raging, you're slightly slower than an average arrow, but with it, you are faster than an arrow. Mm-hmm. So you know that old trick where like, you fire an arrow up in the air with like, a long arc and then run and then like, catch it or you know, lift something up and the arrow hits it? Yeah, you don't need the arc. <laughs> yeah, you have your uh you have the fighter shoot an arrow <laughs> and you just go chase it down. Or you can do you know that old trick from like the the cowboy movies where you put the bullet between your teeth and then you have uh you you shoot your gun off in the corner and it's a blank, but then you catch the uh you catch the bullet with your teeth, you know, and you just kind of like smile at the crowd and it's like, "Oh, look, I caught the bullet with my teeth." And it's like, "Oh, you didn't really shoot a bullet." Yeah. The thing is, you could do that. You could shoot <laughs> a gun or you could have somebody shoot a musket and then just go catch the musket ball in midair. Deflect arrows works like that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you're the flash. So, uh the elemental monk or the the open hand monk will give you um, the ability that you know the, the move where he kind of runs in a circle and and creates a tornado that knocks somebody flat on their back you can do that also you should be wearing red you should definitely wear red uh so Ethan, tell me about how did your character become the flash if you recall volo's guide talks about the cat god uh who is a strange deity somewhat whimsical that many tabaxi worship. Uh, my flash uh, is a devotee of the cat god, but of course the cat god doesn't really want clerics, right? The cat god wants people who excel, people who are the best, you know, like cats. So mm-hmm. this tabaxi can run, like like all tabaxi, but uh-huh. is particularly good at it. Her studies in the martial arts have uh, led her to the joy of unbridled speed. 
But she's not content, and neither is the cat god. She needs to be better than anyone else. And so, once she has completed enough monk training to realize, well, I'm not going to get any faster, she seeks out other ways and then traverses the globe in an epic montage, finding new masters to teach her how to move more quickly. For example, the barbarian tribes of the frozen north and the elven blade singers of the uh, hot jungles and the thieves' guild. (laughs) <laughs> and then finally to the fighters of her homeland oh she gets thrown in a gladiatorial pit and learns how to be a fighter why not wait you mean instead of hitting something again i could just run more i like this <laughs> she emerges triumphant and the cat god smiles and coughs up a hairball wonderful mm-hmm. what about your tabaxi flash uh this is so ridiculous mm-hmm. that I agree. It needs some type of religious devotion. I have selected a different deity. Uh, I would choose a god of storms or of, more specifically, the wind. So let's go with Thor. Well, no. See, it's more of like the embodiment of the the wind. Because Zephyr. What you want to do is run like the wind uh, as best to emulate your deity. Ah. Uh, You honor the, the, the god of the wind. You perhaps are part of a long-standing tabaxi tradition of uh, of sprinting in order to bring the trade winds that uh, lead your community to uh, connect with the greater world outside. Uh, so it is your holy duty to run as fast as you can to bring good fortune upon your tribe. Much easier than memorizing catechism. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> and like the wind, you ignore difficult terrain. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> And you can scratch like a cat. <laughs> it's a kind of a swipe by attack, even though you end up having to give up like 500 feet of movement in order to make a single attack. <laughs> let's rename Bladesong Whistling Wind. <laughs> All right, let's uh, get out of here before we get too many uh, furries jumping on board the show. Why did the show notes say 4chan? <laughs> <laughs> If you want to support the show, the easiest way to do that is to leave us a five-star review on iTunes. And if you're willing to help us out, we'll read your five-star review on the air. You can also find us on Stitcher. It's like a Pandora for podcasts. If you like or favorite us there, the algorithm will help other people find us. All right, and we have a review this week from GBR1140. This is Great D&D Podcast, five stars. I am currently working my way through all of the episodes, and sadly, I'm nearly caught up. Listening to this podcast has been a very enjoyable part of my day recently. I appreciate the host's perspective as well as their excitement for role-playing games. The format is well-organized and the audio quality is excellent. The discussions are clear and concise, while also being fun and entertaining. I enjoy each of the show's segments, particularly the reviews and character creation forge. It is clear that the hosts put a great deal of thought into each episode and their love and enthusiasm for the subject is infectious and often inspiring. This has become one of my favorite podcasts and is absolutely my favorite gaming podcast. Well done. Thank you. And please keep up the good work. Wow. That was lovely. And more than I write for most show notes. Yeah. You uh, you have put more work into that review than we have put into this episode. So I apologize <laughs> for that. Though I will say we spent a lot of time building that flash. Oh, yeah. I mean, yeah, it's, it's one of those where we're like, hold on, hold on. Yeah. Like, let's get into the nitty gritty. Yeah. But, uh, you know, for Rich's question, that's probably the other reason we have a podcast is because we still like doing that crap. Yeah, we were going to do it anyway. Like, 
there's a reason we spent like three hours being like, hold on, sequester? Yeah. <laughs> there's something here. Yeah. All right. What do we have planned for next week's episode? We're saying goodbye to 2016, finally, with the second annual Thrilly Awards, a list of our favorite RPGs, supplements, and products from the past year. And we'll also be sharing our New Year's gaming resolutions. We should probably check in on last year's New Year's yeah. gaming resolutions and see how we did. I was hoping we could avoid that. All right. And in the Character Creation Forge? Uh, we're continuing our Justice League theme and building Aquaman. Great. Well, that's it for episode 73 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we've lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Why do our show notes say 4chan? <laughs> what? <laughs> Boom. Dear Ishan and Shane, can you talk about tabaxi for an hour? I really like them, but I'm not sure why. Uh, go put on the costume, Ishan. You'll understand when you're older. <laughs>